Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is David A. Rothberg, Chairman and CEO of Latecrete. Latecrete International was founded in 1956 and has just under 2,000 team members in 100 countries. The company manufactures adhesives, mortars, and materials for the construction industry. David, thanks for coming on the show. Good. Glad to be here. Yes. Yeah, so tell me, tell me more about the history of the company. So it's a Lady Creed's history is a classic American story, entrepreneurial story, founded by my father and mother of blessed memory, literally in the basement of our home, 1956. Uh, my dad was, as a kid, he loved chemistry. Mm. There are great family stories about him making bombs, <laughs> blowing up garages, <laughs> things that nowadays would attract the attention of the government officials. But he loved chemistry and he went to university, went to chemical engineering school, and his family was a family of modest means. And so he was working at night, putting himself through school. And for some reason, he ended up in the flooring business, working <laughs> at night as a tile setter. And that combination of working with the, this is in the 19, late 1940s, the combination of the emerging polymer chemistry from World War II. Yeah. You know, the synthetics, nylon and, sure. and synthetic rubber was invented by the Germans. And he's setting tile the same way it's been installed for 2000 years by the Romans in, th- yeah. in thick, you know, two inch, 50 millimeter beds. Yeah. And he starts to think about this emerging polymer chemistry and is there a better way? And he starts playing around with formulas and did a couple hundred experiments with liquid rubber, which is the name of the company has come, is Latacrete. Yeah. The first part of the name is latex, liquid rubber. Uh-huh. So he developed a liquid, mixed it with sand and cement, and made a super strong adhesive. And huh. I often say he's, the world is full of inventors who die poor, but my dad had the combination of being not only an inventor solving problems, but he was a heck of a salesman. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a strong combination. Right. So that's a really powerful combination to go out on the job sites, demonstrate your product, find out what problems people are having, and, and then solve them. Huh. So that, that was the, it's a classic. And I say, I mean, it could have happened elsewhere, but America was ripe for it. And from that, he built it. It was, it was because at that time in the 1950s, early 60s, tile consumption, he made a tile adhesive. Yeah. Very easy to use product. But the tile consumption in uh, North America was very limited. Might be 20, 30 square feet per home. So if you were the famous story about the bank robber, Willie Sutton. No, tell the me. American bank robber. Tell me about that. When he was asked why, why he robbed banks. Yeah. He said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> so my dad has a, had a uh, frost-proof, shock-proof a tile adhesive that you could put down three millimeters, an eighth of an inch thick. And he had to go where the tile was. So he went overseas, which is an important part of mm. why we're laid to Creed International mm. and then not just a domestic company. So he took his product overseas from the earliest days. Mm. That's interesting. Was it hard for him? Because I mean, at the time, he must have been, been breaking some new ground. So 
he had to change the way the tile was installed from a 2,000-year-old system. And he also, as I point out to my adult kids now, when you traveled in the 1950s, 1960s, going to Australia, going to Italy, going to Brazil, first of all, wasn't nonstop flights. And then B, you know, you didn't pick up a cell phone and call in and check back in with the office. So I can remember literally on weekends, my dad would call in once a week. We'd be gathered around the phone. Yeah. My mom would take the business notes and he'd say hello to each of the kids. It's, it was a lot of work. To fly to Australia was, I don't know how many stops, Hawaii and Fiji and so forth. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess you got to be really organized. You can't just send an email or get a text if uh, something's out of whack. No emails or text. <laughs> and uh, so that, that were the early days. And my parents had seven kids. I'm one of seven kids. Mm-hmm. And the company was originally was just, it made the products and shipped them around the U.S. and exported them. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, seven, six brothers and sisters, everybody works summers and in a lab and shipping and so forth. But eventually my brother, my older brother, Henry and I were the real lifers <laughs> and stayed in, and worked as the company changed from uh, this export model with one product to becoming what I would call a small multinational to bring the products closer to the customers yeah. to, as you probably know, in building materials, the climates are different. The So you want a, a product that cures in Saudi Arabia may never cure in Norway, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have different formulas. So you produce the products close to the customer, you adjust the formulas. And so we started, we moved to the, well, as I say, a, you know, mid-sized multinational. We've always stayed private throughout all this. We're still entirely family owned. Yeah. Part of our, I would call it our secret sauce to, for our customers and our employees is that we're never selling Mm. We're what's called an evergreen evergreen company. We've signed agreements to never sell the company. So the you get a different commitment from employees. It also means when you're making that's when you're making business decisions. Yeah. You can imagine the difference between a public company or a private equity owned company with a short horizon about their investment decisions or how they treat people or customers. Yeah. Versus if you know you're gonna own this thing forever. Yes. It's powerful. You see what I'm saying? That's powerful. It's powerful. Is that a decision you made or was it, did that sort of come in when you, earlier on? Well, I mean, I guess the decision, my parents, of course, could have sold the company and they didn't. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they sold it, they sold it to my brother and I. Mm-hmm. So they certainly had a preference. I don't think in the early days they'd even thought about buying, selling. But eventually, as I said, Henry and I were fully engaged in the business, invested a lot of years in it. And. Yeah, the family wanted to see it family-owned. Yeah. And now we're in transition. Now we're in transition. So Henry and I are second generation. Now we're in transition Yeah. in ownership to the third generation. So there's four of the next generation working around the world in the company, learning the business from the ground up. Yeah, you you worked, I guess, different roles within the organization to kind of, and then at some point you you guys took it over, but. What was that like uh, working through the organization, knowing that I think, I guess the succession stuff was already pre-planned? Would that be correct? No, no, it, it, it wouldn't really. It wasn't mm. discussed amongst my dad's strengths. We talked about he's an inventor and a salesman, but he wasn't thinking about succession. And then actually there was a, there was a period when it was unclear to employees, whether Henry or David would be the leader. And, and so the company sort of stalled out 
because when people don't know, Henry may say, okay, mm-hmm. let's go to Malaysia. And David says, let's go to Singapore. The employees, they just <laughs> do nothing. They wait to see, <laughs> let these two guys work it out. But in a family meeting, but we had our managers there. I was nominated, made, made as the president. So, and Henry and I have gotten along beautifully, but it wasn't organized succession planning. Now things are a little more organized. Yeah. So when you took over, what was the size of the company roughly? It was a fraction. I think there might've been, at that time we used independent sales reps. There might've been 40 or 50 employees and 50 independent reps. And now we're close to 2,000 employees yeah. worldwide. So, so what was the key? Like you took this over, like you've seen, I guess, very great growth over the years. Like what was the key of sort of... Yeah, great, great, great question. And it got me thinking. So for me, a couple, there were a couple of key elements. One was surround, surrounding myself with people smarter than I am, really competent people. And that includes something that's pretty unusual for a private company, which is we have a, and I started this with my father's endorsement, <laughs> grudgingly, 25 years ago, was an outside board of directors, oh. entirely unrelated, none of our lawyers or accountants, nobody, known relatives of mine. I just was uh, blessed to be able to attract really smart, experienced business people who had, had run successful businesses. So that was it was a, a huge important factor because you get you get the experience of these people. You also you know it's very hard to get people to speak truth to power. Yeah, you know that expression. Yes. Yeah. So an outside board, they tell it like they see it, and that's again not common in in private companies. But it, I, I would say it's been one of the key success factors. Surrounding myself with smart people. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Delegating to these people. So otherwise, the span of one person is only so far. I can only visit so many customers. I can only develop so many products or, or speak to the lab so many times. So increasing your, your reach, leveraging yourself through delegating to people has been an important success factor for me. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, I love that outside board thing. That's, did you do that right away or is that something that you kind of developed into? Like, like obviously, when you first were at 40 or 50 people, you... I'm guessing you didn't have the board no. composition. You were trying to, you were working right. towards it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was actually, we started, I think we first had a board with a, with a few family members. Yeah. So I told you I had siblings, had a few family members and took them to some, I belong to a, a international business group mm-hmm. called young presidents. Now my kids joke and they, they call it <laughs> old people old presidents. But at the time I was a young president. But anyway, and so I met lots of other growth oriented, entrepreneurial oriented business people. And this was suggested, you know, as a best practice. Mm-hmm. And and to my dad's credit, because you know what most self-made mm-hmm. entrepreneurs are like, it's hard for them to take advice from somebody else or share, open the books yeah. of a private company, yeah, yeah. those kind of things. But to my dad's credit, he let us bring in these outside people. And, and then it grew from there. There's no family members on it anymore. And you can go look up our board. These are people who have built multi-billion dollar businesses for Honeywell, run public companies, just really, really. So, so from your board, it sounds like you have like people from other industries and stuff like that. I mean, 
Do you have sort of industry related people on there or is it just the advice of just generally high uh, intelligent e- executives? Yeah. Good question. Most of them are not. There's only one directly from our industry. He actually was president of the North American business of a German mm-hmm. competitor of ours. Long after his non-competes, all his agreements expired, and he's not in the field anymore. So he did have experience in our industry. But for the most part, they've been in, most of them had international businesses. That's probably a common thread. They all manufactured something yeah. as opposed to just pure finance type person. Oh, yeah. that's, that's interesting. Because you're looking for insight, right? You weren't looking for any contacts, essentially, right? That's what we were doing, insight. Right. It's not contacts, it's insights. And the great challenges and themes of business, just to your point we were talking earlier, yeah. are universal. Doing an acquisition effectively. Well, it doesn't matter if it was an acquisition in electronics, like the Honeywell guy on our board, or a business we bought in Italy. But the issues about checklists and having weekly calls and the acquired personnel being one of the great resources of an acquisition, all those are, are universal truths. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, now you have an international company, everyone's spread out, you fly around a lot. How do you sort of keep the communication and everything sort of tight? Like what sort of practices do you sort of, that you've adopted? So a couple of things, a couple of things. One is written goals, getting things, getting agreements from the people that report to you, yeah. getting the goals, having accountability, getting them in writing, and doing the same thing myself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes my kids say, oh, but you're the president of the company, but I report to a board of directors. <laughs> I get reviewed by them. So being accountable, held accountable, helps people on their toes. Having the goals, and this is true, by the way, I believe this firmly in the practice in my personal life. It, it's true about personal goals putting stuff in writing, putting a date on it, and posting it and sharing it, (laughs) making it visible so that people can hold you accountable. Yeah. So that's one important technique to keeping the whole thing glued glued together. The other one, huge one, it's a huge part of our culture, and which is to nothing important ever happens in the office, in the home office. Mm. Post it. If you're in my office, you see a quote on the wall. It says, a desk is a dangerous place from which to see the world. (laughs) It's from uh, Jean Le Carre, the, the spy who came in from the cold. A desk is a dangerous place from which to see the world. It's the downfall of the General Motors and stuff. So sitting in the office and thinking you're doing great, that your customer service is great or your product or whatever, you got to get out. And in our case, it means you got to travel and you got to travel the world. And you're right there in front of the customer. The end user will tell you, you think your product's great, but they can't get it. They can't open the package. It's hard to open. Or your distributor will tell you the truth about your customer service. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a huge, in my own listing, the important habits and, and guidelines for success. It used to be called management by wandering around, but getting out of the office, you can fill your day looking at the computer screen, shuffling stuff, but the, the customers and your employees are the truth. Yeah, that makes sense. And you got to go to easier than when my dad traveled, but you got to take those long flights. You have to break bread and eat raw Weird food in places with people. Weird raw you know? food. What, like what, what? Right? What's a weird raw food or food for you? Well, the live lobster in China, mm-hmm. live lobster or unpalatable things like chicken feet, mm-hmm. right? It's nothing but bones. I don't get it, but you got to do it. You got to go out with employees. You got to go out with customers. 
you got to walk through your your factory and and see what your product looks like, not what the product manager's pretty brochure looks like, but what does it look like when you ship it to the customer? Mm-hmm. So, so I guess you you got a lot of quality control stuff, right? Because every it sounds like your stuff is manufactured in different places. Absolutely, and you know we do the all types of surveys of our customers and end users, and quality is always always listed as one of the top reasons that people do business with with our company. So that's a huge focus. And quality is everything from not just that the product has the same, right PSI and whatnot, yeah. but it's that, they, that when people call, they get accurate information. When, yeah. when promise a delivery, it's, it's delivered on time. So every, everybody is pretty well informed that that's a top success factor. Yeah. I mean, how regularly do you survey that? Is it quarterly? Is it yearly? Like how, how does um, it... So we do, we have these net promoter scores. We do them with the big contractor end users. We generally sell our products to distributors, but the products get used by contractors. Yeah. So we do, I would say roughly 12 to 18 months because you don't want to wear people out yeah. if you do them, survey them too much. Yeah. So 12 to 18 months. And of course, it's, it's all about the trend. You're looking at the trend and you want to get better every, every, every time. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big fan of net promoter for sure. When you're running a company, you're trying to grow it out. Obviously, there's some mistakes that happen along the way. Do you have any regrets or anything that sort of stand out? Well, that's a good, a good one. There were, I would say in the 1980s, there were some technological shifts, some call it easier, some alternatives to some successful, very successful epoxy products we had. Yeah. And we spent too much time trying to tell people why those new products really weren't as good as, as our existing technology. And we really should have been pursuing replacements for our own technology. That's a tough so one for any company, lost, though. It's a very tough one, but we're involved. We've got a product introduction right now. It's public information, so I can say this. Yeah. To replace one of our, our most successful products, which is a three-component epoxy product, replace it with a one-component oh, yeah. product. So this time we're going to kill it, pardon the expression, but we're going to kill our own baby. <laughs> we're going to be the one to kill it before somebody else does. Yeah, We've been able, it's been a multi-year, multi-million dollar investment to have a one component product. It's a grout that has the properties, the physical properties of epoxy, Yeah, but without the, the multiple components that you have to mix with epoxy, the temperature sensitivities, the allergies people have. So that, that, uh, the, the answer, so that one that comes to mind is, I missed a boat on a, a something 35 years ago, but the lesson learned was better that, that you obsolete your own product rather than somebody else does. Yeah. And we've subsequent to that, we've applied it. And this is the most recent case is this new. Yeah. Yeah, new for gr- sure. New grout. Absolutely. It's hard to do. Of course, you're, you can count the money that you're bringing in on the existing product and killing it is it's a hard thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you're talking a little bit with new product introduction, new, the, the future. What sort of trends do you think that you're going to see as the years go by? Or what key trends are you tracking in the materials yeah. or the adhesives? Yeah. Super important. So I just a month ago came back from Dubai mm-hmm. where we printed this 3D printing, 3D construction yeah. printing yeah. is a mega trend that we have been, I won't say following, we've been participating in for over five years now, and it's starting to get traction. For the first four years, it was just attending different groups, flying around the world, supplying materials to to some mechanical printing 
the companies with the, with the printing machine, but you're just seeing it now pop really getting traction around the world. So 3D construction printing. We printed a beautiful three-bedroom, two-car villa in Dubai. Nice. Printed. Nice. Well, additive manufacturing. So that's, that's one we're watching. A big mega trend is the prefab and modular construction. Yep. Moving stuff from the job site into a factory or warehouse. So, and of course, the labor intensive, the plumbing, the tile work, those are, and there's labor shortages around the world, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it isn't just in Germany or the US. I mean, you go to China in the urban areas and there are labor shortages. So moving it into factories, prefab and modular. So we have to pay attention to that. So the customer may be, may be a, a big company rather than a contractor. And second, another mega trend is the use of automation. Again, replacing labor. Mm-hmm. Automation on the job site. And of course, if you're in a factory doing prefab, you're even sort of more amenable to it. But, but automation of applications, of coatings, of oh, leveling compounds. We have a big investment in this system called the SuperCap. Mm-hmm. It's a mobile batching unit mm-hmm. that moves around the, the, the city, the country, and, and pumps this leveling compound up to 70 stories. Yeah. We'll do 10, 20, 30,000 feet. No dust. So the environment and health issue, no dust in the building. Yeah. And with just a couple of people holding the end of a hose. So automation and application of building materials. Yeah. Prefab and modular, I think, is a mega trend. The 3D printing, the additive manufacturing. Yeah. And uh, the other thing we're looking at is, is smart materials and smart, smart floors, putting actual sensors and intelligence into the floor. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Right? Yeah. You walk into a store and they might know if you're going left or right. Might if someone falls in a nursing home. Yeah. Preventive maintenance programs. Preventive maintenance, time to clean or upgrade, yeah. Yeah, those are, those are exciting trends. Now, so you're, you're involved in so many things. Now, I have to ask, what sort of habits or routines help you kind of keep it all together, you know, keep yourself organized? Yeah. So first of all, <laughs> I happen to be an organized person, borderline OCD type stuff. So if you're not organized, I would say it goes back to one of my other comments about success. You better associate yourself with somebody who compliments. If you're not organized, have somebody compliment. You need an organized partner. Yeah. Somebody got to be. But for me, I would say important habits. One is the, what I call time away. Yep. So climbing, hiking for me, it doesn't, everyone can have their own thing. It might be golf or swimming, but clearing your head of the whirlwind when you're, you're sitting at work or you're going to go to work the next morning, your brain is all working in short term and it's filled with the, the crisis du jour. Mm. You go out hiking or you go out cross-country skiing for days and that shit, excuse me, that stuff goes <laughs> to the background. And, and in that space, big ideas, big picture stuff, longer term thoughts have a place to grow. And they have no space to grow when you're, when you're in the whirlwind. So for me, that time away, I, I do long trips in the wilderness. And that's really, that's really helped me to gain perspective on the big ideas and the big picture, the longer term stuff. Mm, great habit. Anything else come to mind? Well, I, I mentioned making sure you associate or complement your weak areas with somebody that better fill in. If you're not a detailed person, you better be sure someone in your organization dots the, uh, what I say, dot the I's, cross the T's. Yeah. If you're not, I'm not a, a sports fan. Yeah. So I can't talk about the latest football score, the rugby competition. 
plenty of employees want to talk about that stuff. So hopefully have something, someone in your management team who can, you know, talk the talk. <laughs> Sounds silly, but yeah. So just complimenting your weaknesses, filling in your gaps. Well, it's interesting you put up, you're thinking about it at that level, right? Like staying in sort of in touch with your team, right? And whether it's yeah. through your management team, you don't do that, but even sports is important for people, right? It's it's people's time away, I guess. Super, super important. Yeah. I'll talk to the people who are interested in history. <laughs> but the point is for me that is that just as you evaluate who who's going to be on your team, who your co-leaders are, who's going on the journey, that you try to complement. Yeah. Complement your your strengths with the other strengths you need. Same thing with the board. When I pick the board, you look for people. What is it that we need? We're doing a lot of international business. We need somebody from Asia. We we can finance. We need somebody strong in finance. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so your board is, you're you're looking at, yeah, skill set and board composition. Asia, yeah, okay. Right, it's not just who's friendly or who's who's local or who's available, right? It shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Or who's going to agree with me. I mean, you consider board culture an aspect of it, or is it just compl- compliments? Explain or explain what you mean by that. Share core values, like with your company, like to be a board member, or are you just looking for uh, specialists or expertise? That is an interesting question. And I would say that the people on the board share a, a lot of the values. I didn't seek them that way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they, for example, if they see we're making decisions that are suboptimal from a profit point of view, yeah. because we've decided we're going to increase benefits or we're going to keep employees on or stay in a community, keep a factory open. That's a classic one that a community is dependent on. And if they didn't buy into this Leda Crete and Rothberg family sort of conscious capitalism idea, they'd say, gee, shut the factory. It saves $5 million a year. Of course you would do that. If it was a public company, you'd have to do it Yeah. because of you know fiduciary responsibility. So the answer is they, people on the board generally buy into our long-term and socially responsible culture. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't want to be there. Yeah. They just wanted to see the company maximize profit. They'd say, you're, you're not a man, you're not an owner I want to be associated with. Yeah. You're leaving money on the table. You're- uh, I get the feeling that although you haven't given a thought that you, that's what you have done. You've created a group. And obviously I think through your site and your actions, you communicate your core values. So you're either going to attract or repel people. So you brought in a people that, that share huh. much of your core values on the board. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I never thought about it when I, if you asked me about looking for directors, I never didn't have that on the list. But as you say, they look at our company too. When you look at it, talk to a director, they check you out. Yeah. And I did once, I, there was a guy I was interested. He was a professor at the Yale Business School. We're in New Haven, Yale University yeah. here. And I had met him some, I don't know, lectures or whatever. I thought he'd be interesting. And then when I was interviewing him, yeah. talking to him on the phone, he went off on a huge, tirade about guns, anti-gun, and which didn't offend me or anything, but I knew that one of the existing board members was on the board of a firearms company. And I knew this would not, (laughs) this guy, it would just, it would be the biggest explosion ever. (laughs) So in in that sense, I guess I thought a little bit about, about it, but yeah, I think as you say, the people, they investigate the company and they talk to me and they talk to other managers and they decide it's a culture they 
that they buy into. Yeah. So let's say we're dealing with a smaller company that kind of try to take this kind of outside board concept, right? And bring in the best people. Yeah. Let's say, I mean, I, obviously, I, I'm assuming you compensate your your board, right? Fairly well. Well, they are compensated, but it's very interesting. Yeah. They're not compensated like if you look up for a public company yes. where you can look up the hundreds of thousands of dollars they get. Yeah. It's not, it's not like that. So I've often <laughs> wondered myself, I've thought a lot about why people I, I get these tremendous people, yeah. but it fulfills something for them also, right? I mean, keeps people, most of them, is this true? They're retired, but they're all active. They have businesses and investments and they're on other boards. But, you know, it gives them something to stay involved in. I know that they learn something. Like I said, they all have their own investments and some of them run businesses. Yeah. So they're learning from Ladacrete. Yeah. They're, they get a lot of respect. I mean, the board of directors is the highest authority at Ladacrete. So I guess that's sort of nice for people. And maybe also when they're at their country club and people say, what do you do? We say, oh, I'm on the board of a company. Yeah. Anyway, that's a answer. So there are, they are compensated, but they obviously get a lot of other non-cash yeah. reward or satisfaction. So you, you say that sometimes you wonder. So obviously it's, it probably has a lot to do with the good things that you do, right? And it has to be, because if you wonder it from sort of the pragmatic kind of give and take thing, like oh, that's kind yeah. of easy for people to understand, you probably have a lot of intangibles that the people latch onto. But yeah, but you're the basis or whatever of your question you said was about smaller companies. Yeah. I think where you're going, yeah. attracting people. Yeah. Right. So I started this, whatever I said, 25 or 30, 30 years ago. Yeah. We weren't as big, as successful, as prominent. And so I think young, young, small startup people still can have advisory boards. Yep. I wouldn't go ask your accountant or your lawyer. You don't want people who are beholden to you. Yep. Right. You want people, again, and I, you ask people that you trust and respect, can they introduce you to someone who is an expert in finance or an expert in marketing or an expert in, in disruptive technology, whatever your, as I said earlier, whatever you feel your needs, what your, your, the gap is that you would like to have more advice. And maybe you don't call it a board of directors. It's an advisory board. Mm-hmm. Meet, meet four times a year. You start twice a year. Anyway, I think it's a super powerful is to seek out and attract some smart people who can help give you some advice. And people are willing to do it. That's, I guess, the other thing. You don't have to pay them a lot. People, if they're retired, they want to stay engaged in stuff. Yeah. They got a lot of experience and knowledge. And they don't have to worry about it. When after they give you the advice, they leave like a grandparent, right? Yeah. Take care of the kid and then you go. So I would say startups and could benefit and could attract people. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, what sort of other sort of things that you're involved in outside of the business? So outdoor, my passion is the outdoors, and I'm interested in helping to introduce young people to the outdoors. So Appalachian Mountain Club, National Outdoor Leadership School. Uh, Of course, I do stuff with with, uh, various land trusts, maintain trail systems, mostly outdoor-related stuff is my personal thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, yeah. You, you you talked about succession early earlier. What do you want your legacy to be? Like, what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah. So, and I'm in this year is a transition year. This year, we will be looking for a new CEO. We are looking for a new CEO at Ladacrete. And I'll be transitioning to just chairman. Yeah. And the CEO will be a non-family member. 
So I want, I want, I would like to the legacy to be a company with a great reputation for its products, its people, and its ethics. Mm-hmm. That it stayed family-owned. They didn't sell out. And so it, it was able to take the long-term view and do the right thing for employees and customers that comes from being privately owned. Yeah. And I, I'd like to see uh, multiple generations. I want to beat the odds. Mm-hmm. That's, every culture has a saying about first generation starts it, second generation builds it, third generation loses it. <laughs> You've heard this, right? Every culture. Yeah, in the world I've heard it. it. I've heard it. I've seen it. Yeah. Shirt. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or they say shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Whatever. All those stories. So the legacy, and I'm working very hard with the family members, with the next generation owners, and some of whom work in the company, and some who will never work here. Yeah. But on being sure that they have a forum for meeting and resolving family issues, so that that you don't see us on the front of the Wall Street Journal. You see these family-owned companies that blow up. Yeah, You see companies blow up. You see families separated. So the legacy I want is a that stays family-owned and that the family continues. Like my seven brothers and sisters, we're all super close, even though only two of us are in this business now. We do all holidays together. That the cousins, the third generation, also that the company is a facilitates the family relation, doesn't cause any kind of schism in the family. Yeah. So stay family owned, family stays close, reputation of the company. We may not be the biggest, not the cheapest, but they say the company's products are great. The people there are terrific and they're treated well and the ethics are unimpeachable. Awesome. That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anyone can beat the odds, I I think it's, I think it's you. I mean, just listening to you and your passion for it, uh, I I think you're going to pull it off. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm working that. That issue, like I said, as hard as I'm working the transition to the new CEO, I'm working on the family side to be sure that they're trained properly. And as I said, the ones that work there and the ones that don't work there, that they got a mechanism to resolve shareholder disputes, all those things. So it doesn't boil over to the management and and all those kind of stories you hear about that destroy good companies and good families. Awesome. Very inspiring. Now, last question. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Anything you ask me, you know about the history, told you what I consider my success factors, trends in the industry. No, no. And my my key habits for success we talked about, written goals, time away, and getting out in the field. It's, yeah, you, you that's covered it. some very, very cool things. And yeah, it's definitely, a, it gave me a few cool things to think about. So I, I very, yeah. very much uh, appreciate D- David and I'm Sure that the audience got a lot of it out of it too. I'm proud of what our families achieved and all the employees here. And I really intend to have this thing continue long after I'm gone. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.